This episode is dedicated to Dan, Chelsea, and Rachel for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. We are back with Southpaw Deep Space Nine, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a socialist, communist, liberatory perspective, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are working our way through season one. We're actually in the final few episodes. This is episode 17 on Netflix because. The first episode was a two-parter, and Netflix released it as one two-hour episode, which is why it's different from how it's listed elsewhere. But I found that on IMDb, it's also going by the same episode order. They also listed that as just one episode. So, But Scott, can you give us the name for this episode and walk us through it? Yes, I would love to. We are on, as you said, Netflix Order 17, Production 18, Dramatis Personae. I love all the Latin-named episodes for Star Trek. They probably weren't listening to a lot of Lou Reed, but one of my favorite Lou Reed lines is, it's hard to give a shit these days, written in Latin, which I'm (laughs) sure some of the characters in this show feel sometimes. But I think it's playing into the whole space opera thing. Absolutely. The way they lean into it in season one, I feel like they are having a lot of fun and messing around with ideas. So we open up, Kira informs Cisco that the Valerians, who are known to work with the Cardassians as like gun runners, supposedly they're war criminals in their own right, especially to Kira and the Bajoran people. And she is not about it. She is not about it at all. And she sees them going through normal routes that would be a way that they would transfer dolomite dolomine to the Cardassians. And the Cardassians, we know, are the war criminals of this show who had this terrible occupation of Bajor and Deep Space Nine was originally called Terok Nor, and that was their ship, hence the design of it being very Cardassian and and almost brutalist in nature. Kira wants to just like search the vehicle. And Cisco is like, we can't do that. We can't do a search without reason. Kira's like, I'm gonna find out. And the kids are on a field trip to Bajor. And much like every few episodes lately, energy shows up into the wormhole again. A Klingon ship comes out of the wormhole and explodes. We warp in a Klingon who says victory, and he dies. (laughs) But the Klingon first officer brought something with him. 
And we all we know about the ship is that it was going on a bio survey. If you know the Klingons and what they search for that they would go on a science mission is not within their character traits that we're known for. Now the Klingons are more complex than given than definitely how they were developed in the original series. And the Klingons are dope. And Deep Space Nine develops Klingon culture in a way that no other show does until Discovery. But we have to go through this telling, pretending we know nothing about Discovery. So Dax and O'Brien, they go on a trip trying to survey the space debris, see if they can find anything. The Valerian ship, they want to dock. Kira wants to make them as miserable as possible. They want to wait. They've been, she's like, nah, they went on the same journey usually to, to get these guns. Like, we don't want these guns. As Nas said, you know, pulling semi-automatic nuns on guns, guns on nuns. No, we will not do that. Odo goes to Quark's bar and tries to talk about the Klingons. Quark is like, they're tough customers. They're rough customers. They, they pay very well and that the trip was supposed to be glorious and make the empire stronger. This is a building of the Odo Quark dyad where they're having a little sort of dance and it's fun. And they're the, the two actors are working off of each other. And then Odo has some sort of seizure type incident. His face shakes, breaks. He is in pain. He falls down, wakes up, and Bashir, who now, since since Angel titled Bashir Dr. Horny, I do notice all the time that, that all of his talks with anyone are very flirtatious in nature. <laughs> so even when he's talking to Odo, normally there's like a smile and a touch and i feel it i i think he's doctor sensual but you know angel gets to keep all of that but i'd like to give honor to the architects before me and bashir says to odo you know with the valerians and all this going on kira and cisco are going to have beef about this bashir gets a has an interesting tone going on and Bashir's, and Kira is doing more and more work in finding out about the ship, and wants to press charges against them. And this, there's this tension that Cisco and Kira are creating. They're starting to beef. Miles and Dax, they're out there. They're talking about the situation, about this uneasy situation of the Federation being there post Cardassian occupation, and that if the Federation leaves. Bajor is open to attack and may be occupied again. And then O'Brien, in an acting turn that's a little confusing, goes, be careful. Don't side with the natives. Loyalty to Cisco, really out of character. And definitely in the context of now, I'm like, man, that's fucked up. I didn't <laughs> like that. So now Kira is trying to manipulate Odo to go behind Cisco's back saying, you're going to have to choose a side. So the Kira and her Bergeron peoples are getting one way, and, and Cisco's getting kind of rude. He's like building a gigantic clock. They find some recordings about the Klingon, 
the whole basic team, the main team talks about the tape and everyone's being kind of nasty. And, you know, even Cisco is like bored and just not feeling it. Then Dax and Kira meet at Quarks. Kira wants Dax to make a complaint about Cisco to try to get him in trouble in like, you know, some jurisprudent sort of way. Dax is being really wistful and mostly talking in memories about her experiences as a father figure to Cisco when she when she was Curzon and all this stuff, and everyone's just like, shut up. Kira threatens Dax and then throws Quark. Quark's neck is messed up. Obviously, something is going on. There's like three episodes in a row where it's like exploring thoughts and different sort of vibes. Quark goes to Odo with like a neck brace and is worried about the behavior going on. And Odo is able to find the Klingon entries and show that there was a mutiny. O'Brien tells Odo that he has his back. The power plays get wilder and wilder. It's not particularly good strategic plans. They're just getting angry and paranoid. And and Kira is going against Cisco and O'Brien and vice versa. O'Brien's character shows up in a way that that actually really rubbed me the wrong way they rubbed rub me the wrong way more than once one time said some someone said to me you look like cole meanie and i was like well you're a cole meanie and that was <laughs> a really bad pun I, I have to go it's been good with you live long and prosper so the paranoia is, is high and kira knows that for whatever reason odo cannot be corrupted both by this energy and odo is uncorruptible because of his 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 own ideas of chivalry, like knight chivalry and whatever. And she says some shit is happening and the Valerians are being held and Kira has cut off communication to the Federation and O'Brien has cut off communication to Bajor. Odo scans the journal. It's a Sultanar race. They created a telepathic sphere. So this telepathic sphere energy I think, is messing with everybody's heads. So Cisco wants every single sympathizer of Kira arrested. Odo walks in on Bashir talking to a Bajoran and says to pick sides. Bashir explains he found that there was Klingon brain instability due to the telepathy. Odo gets Bashir to look at the energy. A Bajoran tries to assassinate Cisco, but Cisco's too nice. But there, there's a coup, and shit is going buck nutty. Odo makes both groups think that, he has, that he's on their sides and has them all meet for a standoff. And Odo plays some binaural beats, some music, some frequencies that gets rid of the telepathic influence and opens the space door, and the influence goes into the vacuum of nothingness. I mean, it's more like a telepathic virus, right? Yeah. And Cisco and Kira apologize for trying to kill each other. And it, it, we end with Cisco working on a clock type thing. So let's talk about this episode. Let's first start with the question of dolomite. What is it? Yeah. So dolomite is like, it's a versatile chemical energy tech you know, that can be used for power generators and it things that have to do with travel. 
it's like it's like how cobalt is what you need for some of these electric cars and shit. It can both be turned into to weapons and also can be used for regular things. And so the Valerians were supplying the Cardassians with it. Weapons grade dolomite, think think like space plutonium. This reminds me of what Marx called Earth Matter. Marx said money is fictitious and even capital can be fictitious. He had a whole thing about fictitious capital. But natural resources, earth matter is the only thing you can't replicate. In real life and in sci-fi, apparently. So in this post-scarcity world, resources are still scarce. Actually, Marx basically predicted the climate crisis, except he called it the metabolic rift. Basically, that earth matter, natural resources are the only real things. Like everything is made of stuff. And so when you run out of stuff and when you start converting stuff into profit, it has a side effect. And that side effect could kill us all. Just like in real life, the future, Star Trek space has to obey the same physical laws. So even there, things are still made out of stuff. Even though you can replicate stuff, it still needs energy for you to replicate stuff. And so when you look at electric cars, for instance, in today, in the now, people are like, oh, it uses less stuff, right? It just uses electricity. It's better. But actually, that energy is still made from stuff. In the US, most of that energy comes from coal. So coal is being burned, turns into energy, that energy becomes energy for your electric car. I don't know what the actual metrics are to compare it to regular cars and oil and stuff, probably better, but it's still creating a side effect. So even in space, they probably have cleaner energy, but it's ultimately still made from stuff. Holodex is all energy, it's all light, but it's still made from stuff. So it seems like dolomite is one of the important natural resources that they need to still create the stuff. It's just that it seems like in Star Trek, they've written it so that a little goes a long way. They don't need as much stuff as we do now. They've become more efficient. And that's what we want to do is become more efficient. But it is impossible in a material world that is made of stuff to not need stuff because we're also made of stuff, right? Like the reason why we need food to live or for little kids need food to grow is because that food matter, that stuff gets converted into us, right? So we're all made of stuff. Yeah, and and the stuff that we're made of is super cool and intelligent. How the the alchemy and the chemistry of turning things into other things and a sort of aside that, hey, even in Star Trek, we need these things to make these things. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. We consume stuff whether it's food or sunlight too, oxygen, water, right? 
And then not only can we turn it into ourselves, we could also turn it into other living beings. So that is the law. That's the physical law that Star Trek must also obey. So even in this world, resources are still important. And that's why ultimately, even if fictitious money is no longer around or not as prevalent, there are certain things that act as money, which is resources. Absolutely. So looking at Odo investigating the Klingon death at Quark's bar and Cisco and Kira investigating the Valerian ship, especially doing this in back-to-back scenes, it makes it more transparent that Odo and the Federation are the same apparatus. Odo's jurisdiction is within the station. The Federation is everything outside of it. So Odo is investigating it within DS9 to get any clues, whereas the ops team are investigating it outside of DS9. I think this is key political understanding for real life, that the differences in agencies is often where their jurisdiction is, rather than being different apparatuses. It's still the same minds and political philosophies, the domestic and the international. I know, Scott, you train martial arts and also study some Taoism. How the Federation or the U.S. does one thing is how it does all things. I think that's a key concept to understand for political education. I think people think, oh, the U.S. does this thing domestically, but internationally, they're heroes. And it's like, no, the same apparatus, the same policies, they apply it domestically, they apply it internationally. Why are racialized people in the U.S. poor? Why are racialized countries poor? Because they're both sanctioned, right? Systematic poverty is another term for sanctions. And that's what happens domestically. Sanctions are what you do internationally. How the U.S. does one thing is how it does all things. So I think that's important to know because a lot of times people's political lenses end at the border and then maybe domestically they're leftists and internationally there's some other political lens, right? And it's like, I think this episode is a teaching moment. I think Taoism, that type of lens is also a helpful tool to look at politics. It definitely helps me when I'm trying to think about concepts with less emotion and just try to understand them. And also, I do a lot of dialectic thinking as well. And I think they work with each other and try to come up with my own system of beliefs that is consistent with my morals and values, which tend to be going lefter and lefter as I get older and do more work and read more literature and meet more people. And even in even in this newest way of watching Deep Space Nine, it's it's a, it's really furthering my hypotheses of my beliefs, which is really nice. Now, something you mentioned in the recap is the natives line by O'Brien, which stood out, and I think it was meant to stand out. And it reminds me of similar lines by Bashir in the pilot episode. And I thought both were intentional. And in this episode, drives home what's causing all the tension. To unpack that, it's about the client state or colonial state wanting independence and autonomy, 
versus their protectorate or colonizer. The natives line referencing back to natives versus settlers, right? Of course, in this episode, this tension is manufactured, but the writers were touching on a real thing. Absolutely. And it was also, to me, a little bit of a let me know that maybe something was going on with O'Brien, because I'd like to think that his discussion and use of words for the Bajorans, because he sometimes is able to connect their conflict to the Irish conflict, that he, he wouldn't have used that, I don't think. Or I'd like to think he wouldn't. I'd like to think that he's more intelligent with his emotion about language. But also it's possible that language is different. There, uh, that, you know, there are different forms of syntax and yeah, maybe that, that the way words work and colloquialisms are different a couple hundred years from now, but I don't know. Well, as a person of color, it's not just about the words themselves. It's about how the person says it, right? If I say those people, that's fine. If I say those people, it's the same words, but you know what is being meant when they say those people, right? And so we know that this was O'Brien acting out of character because going even back to the Bashir example I gave where he was also using settler language, the way he was saying it in the pilot episode, it was much more coming from ignorance and naivete, which is how the actor played it and how the scene was read versus this scene with O'Brien, it didn't read like that. The way he was performing, you could tell it was malicious. Instead of saying natives, he said natives. He said it with a certain emphasis, meaning he was using it as a pejorative, right? So from there, you could tell this isn't the O'Brien we know. Yeah, we're seeing something happen. And yeah, you, you brought up a lot of interesting ideas, yes, because my lens is that I am a white Jewish cis hetero man living in America. So I largely have the privileges afforded there. My experience, I don't feel that in America I am an oppressed class. I don't. That has been one of the reasons I've been disinvited to my uncle's Thanksgiving. And yeah, you're right. There is there is a way to, in, in these experiences that have happened to me, I've felt the little bit of difference. Uh, and, and in fact, one of the last times I felt very uncomfortable as a Jewish person and felt anti-Semitism was watching the first Borat movie and watching people laugh at the Jewish jokes in a way that it just didn't feel good. But I also have tremendous problems with Sasha Baron Cohen. So is he Jewish? He is. He's Jewish. He's he's very Zionist. He's very he's 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 problematic to me. I find his comedy tries to present that it's intellectual and kind, but I think He's still picking on people. In general, I don't like prank humor. I don't like it for the same reason, actually, I like MMA, which you would think a lot of people would like both. And there are a lot of people who like both. But going back to Taoism, for me, it's about consistency. I like MMA because even though it's violent, both people have consented and it's informed consent. 
right? This is why it's different from an assault or a street fight. Pranks, the reason why it's funny is because the other person doesn't know that they're in the joke, that they're being violated, right? Because they didn't consent to be part of it. Now they may agree to be on TV later on, but I also think that's exploitative because often people just agree to things just because they don't know what they're agreeing to. Yeah, and there's pressure and there's a lot of language that people that don't have access to lawyers are confused of. It's not informed. Yeah, I think a lot of those things can be absolutely exploitative. You're getting non-informed consent after the fact. Yes. So going back to your whole thing about Sasha Baron Cohen, that's his whole thing, right? He made his name off of that type of non-consensual prank humor. Yes, in a way that that othered people a lot. Now, going back to Odo and why he had the reaction in the bar, that I don't know, because the whole infection happened while they were on ops. But, you know, we'll let it go, right? It's plot armor. We'll let it be. <laughs> Even like how uh, the Valerian ship, that was like the whole inciting incident. They had to investigate it. And then halfway through, no more mention of the ship or the Dolomite. They don't care. Even at the end, they're like, well. And you know what they call that? What? A MacGuffin. <laughs> yes yes actually even though there's a lot of things we're breaking down just because we're analyzing and criticizing things that were brought up about an episode that doesn't necessarily mean we're criticizing the episode not at all we're criticizing ideas from the episode so even though we have a lot to say about this episode and even like with a few of these like not so great plot stuff I actually thought the episode was good. I thought the episode was very strong. So there's two ways to think about a show when it comes to listening to us. There's the performance. And so that's the performance of the show and the actors when you watch it and you have some kind of enjoyment out of it. But that's completely independent on what we're going to discuss because we're not looking at the performance. We're just looking at the ideas and things that we could kind of unpack from those ideas that were brought up, even if those ideas were brought up in passing. So just because we may deconstruct a lot of things, does that take away from the show or mean that the show wasn't good or strong? Yes. We're looking at two different things here. Right. And for many other reasons, the most important one is that there are other podcasts that go over those things. So we're just trying to get to the meat of of what we're trying to uncover and discover in this, you know, understanding of the text that is Deep Space Nine. And sometimes I will bring up acting or actors or things that are important or interesting. Like when we were talking about If Wishes Were Horses, the actor that played Rumpelstiltskin was also in Carnival and Twin Peaks because one, I could... I could talk about Carnival forever. That was that. And I thought it was cool that Colmini was uncomfortable with that character being a leprechaun. So that's what we're talking about. And we've even been talking about possibly like doing a little like, what did we think of this episode just for, from an episode perspective? Because from an episode perspective, I thought this first season one, it was a good episode. Relatively compared to the rest of the season is pretty good. And it doesn't mean we don't ever talk about the performance. It just means it's weighted differently, meaning 90% during the commentary part is going to be about 
philosophy and politics. Now, going back to what I was saying about Odo, Odo is the only real alien on DS9, the outsider, where his biology is different from everyone else. So it makes sense. He's the one who's unaffected and the one who has to solve this mystery because even as a character, he has no real allegiances. As far as I can tell, watching this and not watching anything further ahead, just based on the canon of what we've watched so far, which also makes it harder to critique him as a cop because part of the criticism about cops or imperial cops, such as soldiers like Cardassians, isn't just their authority, but also because of their loyalty and allegiance to power. Odo seems more loyal to his own code and to order, if anything, rather than any alien world or political organization. And we see that here. So he's complex, not only in biology, but as a character. And that's why there's no direct parallel for Odo in real life, because we don't have a shapeshifter in real life. So it's not so easy to pigeonhole him. And it's also why he's the perfect one to be the head of this episode. Yeah, he was he was an excellent head of the episode, but it was interesting to watch him reluctantly play politics. Now, Cisco using the term sympathizer, which you also brought up, again feels intentional. Seems like this plot is a way to criticize the so-called good guys without directly criticizing them or pissing off viewers. The Federation, in reality, is still overpowered guests. And so they're addressing that in this episode. Yeah, when he starts using the word sympathizer and just using language that is so unlike Cisco. Yeah, I think the writers are very much aware, not because they have leftist politics, but in trying to be a world builder, right? And have a coherent, consistent world like a dungeon master, let's say, right? Even if you don't want the world of the dwarf kingdom, you have to make it all consistent. And so in this world, in making it consistent, it's very obvious there's power asymmetries, right? And so I think the use of the term sympathizer isn't talking about Nazi sympathizers, right? Because then that would mean like the Federation would be the uh, underpowered people in this scenario. No, I think they were talking about communist sympathizers. And also the, the Bajorans, the Bajorans aren't fascists. The parallel for me is trying to root out communist sympathizers, right? This like Western power or the current power of a country, especially during the Cold War, is looking for any communist sympathizers, Red Scare, all that. And so that's how I read that whole line. And also it came with criticisms about when you have an overpowered guest, even if they mean good, they're still overpowered. They're still asymmetries in power. So therefore, they cannot be the rebels ever. They cannot be the underdogs. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. 
the way O'Brien came off, he came off very much like a McCarthy character, right? Absolutely. It's a short episode, so they didn't have a lot of time to expand on that. Right, which we know that he is pretty sympathetic to... (laughs) Sympathetic. He understands the Bajoran plight, understands leftism to whatever extent is important to him in his life. So yes, just watching them become caricatures or theoretical caricatures of of power-hungry dictators and people of that nature. Yeah, because we know the real O'Brien is a sympathizer. He does sympathize with the Bajorans. He does sympathize with the working class, with the unions, you know, so he would be somewhat of a parallel to communist sympathizers that they were trying to weed out during the McCarthy era. So that's how we knew he was out of character because he was being the opposite. Absolutely. Now, the way Odo used trickery to get Bashir to help him was interesting because it seemed Odo wasn't comfortable with lying. So he emphasized certain truths to get Bashir to help solve the mind control problem. So we're really learning more about Odo. I don't think any other character had this much development of character in this season as much as Odo has. And it goes back to what I was saying. He's not simply one thing. He's literally a shapeshifter, but his character is very complicated. And as Deep Space Nine is way different than Tarek Noor, he is growing. And the law and order that he used to look for doesn't exist in the same way. I like how at the end, Cisco was defeated so he could give the villain death speech, even though it's just pretend. Really points to where the outside power is. Kira will only ever come off as a rebel, even though she's much meaner, I guess, in this episode as this mind control character. But it wouldn't make sense to make her the villain in this power structure dynamic because she can't be. She's the Bajoran, right? They don't have that type of power, so it wouldn't make sense. Even though it was going to be resolved before either one dies, it made sense why she had to win at the end. And because she is the rebel, whereas the Federation can't be because the power, like I said, is asymmetrical. Right. And she did do stuff like this in the war. The Cardassians try to make her out to be a terrorist or a war criminal. She has a past. She's done things like this. It's just normally she wouldn't do it like this because the, the, her personality in this episode is so not how we know Kira because she's a very complicated, pained person. Nana Visitor did a wonderful performance in this episode. Now, to what you were saying, the apology by Kira at the end also makes it feel like that, that this was all still based on something, not just what she's done in the past. But why would she need to apologize when nobody else is apologizing? And she feels like she needs to apologize because this was based on feelings that she has or not even feelings and awareness that she knows is true, which is the Federation are overpowered guests. And she's always cautious that maybe something happens down the line and we have to try to kick them out too, which is a very legitimate risk. As Bajorans, they should always be worried that the Federation can over stay their welcome or try to take over or whatever, right? Because they've been in this situation before. So they should always have one eye on the Federation just in case. And so I think 
her apologizing is because her actions were based on actual feelings and concerns, rightful concerns. Right. Cisco knows that. That's why he also said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll pretend it never happened this time. Right. Also saying, I know you're worried about this also. Her presentation was not her, but she could consider overthrowing Cisco if need be. And Cisco's saying, if that situation arises, he will still side with the Federation, whether they're right or not. Right. So he's warning her back. Even though I question whether he will, because so far, you were talking about Dungeons and Dragons earlier. So you know the alignment system. So I've always tried to figure out who these characters are. And, and many of the main characters of, of Star Trek are the, the captains, commanders, what have you, are chaotic good because they are, they will turn the law if it's right. And I've heard that Cisco changes a lot, not just one time, but he's continually evolving throughout the seasons, right? And so in this one, he hasn't had enough crises to change him yet. So this is just kind of how he is. Right. He's At this point, he's towing the company line. He believes in the company line. Locutus of Borg, Captain Picard, when he was a Borg, is responsible for his wife's death, and he still works for the company. So he's still very much part of that, uh, you know, a military man going through all of the ups and downs of that and whether that will change as things move. I mean, even what you said that he probably wouldn't, just because I'm watching this with fresh eyes, if you were right, and even in season one, right then and there, he was already at the point where he would help Kira in a coup or like kicking the Federation out. Actually, that then would just be bad writing because there hasn't been enough events in season one to make him change like that. He's Yeah, he's not ready. Just like in real life, for us to change, we need things to happen to us to change. Right, and there's different phases, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like that's a little bit of bleeding backwards where that would actually make the writing of this even worse. If he was already there, where nothing has happened so far to make him get there. I mean, that's something that I talk to Angel a lot about too, is fans who've watched further forward in trying to bleed back some of the character development that happens later on, they're actually making the whole writing and plot and whatever worse because they're attributing characteristics before the life-changing events happen. Then that doesn't even make sense. That's just sloppy writing. I mean, if he was ready to overthrow the Federation with Kira just from what's happened so far, right? Then why would he even be a company man? Why is he even, you know, a commander? That doesn't even make sense, right? He wouldn't have been there after his wife died. It just wouldn't have happened. Now, the overall premise was about a telepathic virus, which seems even more relevant today, especially during the early stages of COVID and the pandemic with all the QAnon and conspiracy cults. But this is a very real thing known as social contagion. It's not always a bad thing either. Like laughter and happiness can be contagious, but so can harmful and negative emotions as well. And I'm thinking now of the 2007 Ashley Judd movie called Bug. That's all about social contagion and how someone's toxic beliefs can pass on to others. Going back to what we're talking about, how the discussion and the deconstruction is different from the viewing experience. Like viewing it, 
was good. It was fun, right? I wouldn't think it was an Oscar-worthy movie, but the ideas in that movie were better than Oscar-winning movies of that year or a lot of Oscar-winning movies in, in general. Yeah, the, these sort of, like, this, this sort of topic of social contagion or mind reading, things of that nature, tend to give me a, an immense amount of anxiety. So I, I tend to avoid them when I can. Uh, and yeah, parasocial relationships, and which, are, which definitely happened a lot to a lot of people I know during the COVID era. And also we were talking about, I think we've talked about, you know, Neuralink for three weeks in a row. I'm very scared of of mind control. DS9 handled it in a less scary way by turning that intangible, and because it is intangible in real life, it's harder to fight, turning it into an actual alien virus. And so then ultimately it was some kind of material thing that they could suck out into space vacuum, whereas we can't do that in real life, right? So they have advantages as writers and as, fiction creators to handle that in a much easier way. But to your point about how this makes people uncomfortable, this whole social contagion and all that stuff, you know, because beyond just like the social contagion of dangerous ideas and scary ideas and harmful ideas that can lead to harmful actions, there's also the discomfort of policies and actual conflict, not intrapersonal conflict, but world conflict, right? Because just as this virus can manufacture conflict on the ship, the media itself can manufacture the same thing. And so can powerful people. They can also manufacture conflict. Media critics to scholars like Gramsci, to Freire, to Chomsky, all warn us about how our beliefs can be engineered. Our thoughts are not always our own. And that's something we should always be aware of. I think you've mentioned that before too. All the time. That's something we should be asking ourselves. Where did I get this thought? Does this thought even make sense? Do I even believe this thought? Sometimes we believe things just because they're the default and not because we chose to believe them or that they even fall into our values or that we even investigated those claims. It just like social contagion, we just inherit them, whether from family, society, media, people you look up to. Our thoughts are not always our own. No, they're absolutely not. And we are our thoughts, and sometimes they're not our own. And yeah, I always think that it's pretty neat that Dom Shamsky's superhero origin story is that he was a linguist. And in looking at power dynamics and language, he was like, oh, shit's fucked. <laughs> awesome. I think this wraps it up. Thank you all for listening. Remember to give the Southpaw Network a stellar review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, support us on Patreon. You can find all pertinent info at southpawpod.com. Scott, what are we watching next week? So we are watching Duet. I am both looking forward to and not looking forward to unpacking this episode with you. I may cry, <laughs> but we'll be there together. Yes. Solidarity. Yes. Until then.
Bum, bum, bum.